0: For Zephaniah. Last week, we'll look at uh, some of the second chapter this week, and then we get to we get to camp next week on the end of this little prophet. Uh, you, you're you're going to want to be here for that. I mean, you just are. So uh, I guess that's an invitation, an encouragement, an enticement. It's something, but uh, we're going to look at the last part of it next week. But today, uh, Zephaniah chapter 2 beginning at verse 1 and the particular phrase that I want you to uh, pay attention to, it's a phrase that has recurred uh, multiple times so far in this prophecy, is simply the phrase the day or the day of the Lord. Uh, That's where we want to camp today. So hear the word of God, Zephaniah chapter 2. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect Before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts, "...against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride." Because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts, the Lord will be awesome against them. For he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. Wow. Wow. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we come to your word. Give us grace to understand it. I pray for your people, that they'd be encouraged by it. I pray, O oh Lord, that as we seek to understand it and as we are encouraged by it, this this note, this note of the day of the Lord would be a note that we would sound for the warning of those who need to be warned and for the even and ever deepening Comfort of those who need to be comforted. Uh, Lord, be with us by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A lot of you uh, in this room will not remember this song. A lot of you will. I think Doris Day sang it. She sang it back in the late 50s, early 60s, again, before a lot of you were born. But after a lot of you were born. You remember the song, Que Serah, sera, whatever will be, will be. There's a little verse in that song uh, that goes something like this. When I was a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? This is what she said to me. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. And the idea in the song is that you can't, from this vantage point, you can't peer down the corridor of history. You can't see how history is going to turn out. You can't know whether you're going to be pretty or whether you're going to be rich. You just kind of have to wait for things to unfold, right? Well, true about an awful lot. In fact, probably 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent of history But there are some things about which we get some information. And the prophets become the eyes through which we can look down the corridor of history, a kind of a peephole through which we can gaze. And as we look through that hole, there are things that we can see. And one of the things that we can see, while we can't see all of the details and intricacies of it, the one thing that we can look down the corridor of history and see is this day of the Lord thing. This day of the Lord thing. Now, I want you to remember the setting, and I'll try to do this quickly, just try to remember the setting in which we find ourselves as we come to Zephaniah. We're at about 620 B.C., uh, Zephaniah is, is one in a, in a long string in history of prophets that include the major and the minor prophets, uh, but that go back beyond the major and minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and then Hosea and, and the rest of the minor prophets, back to Elisha and Elijah, and actually all the way back to Moses, and in a sense, even beyond Moses, all the way back to Adam, who was the first prophet who was entrusted with the word of God and who spoke the word of God. God has always given his word to his people. He's never left his people in the dark. Even on the other side of the fall, his people were not in the dark. They were given a word. They were given truth. They were given the wisdom of God. They needed it. Across the centuries of history since the fall, God continues to give his word to his people. And we're at about 620 B.C., and you may remember from last week that as a part of what God communicates to his people, communicated to his people, there are these warnings. Uh, Now, again, remember the high points, the high water marks of Israel's history. 2,000 is Abraham. That's when Abraham is called. 1,500 is the Exodus. That's when the people leave their bondage in Egypt. They make their way to the Promised Land. They occupy the Promised Land. 1,000 is the establishment of the monarchy with Saul and David. And then after David is Solomon. And when Solomon dies in about 930 B.C., the kingdom is divided, Rehoboam gets one slice of it, Jeroboam gets the other slice of it, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, Israel with Samaria, the capital city, Judah with Jerusalem, the capital city. And about 120 years later begins the ministry of Amos, the first of these prophets, these writing prophets. And in the very first of those prophets, Amos, the warnings begin to come certainly to Israel with Samaria, the capital city, but also to Judah. Warnings. Warnings to Judah. That Judah pay attention. That Judah heed these warnings. That Judah turn from her idolatries. That she turn from her sin and her unrighteousness. And all of the stuff like barnacles on the hull of a ship. These accretions that sort of gather in different ways on their basic Rejection of their covenant Lord. Their covenant Lord who won them to himself. Married them at Mount Sinai. Made them a bride. The object of his love and affection. And they spurned his advances. They rejected his love. And sought intimacy with gods who are no gods. And God warns them. Not because he hates them. But because he loves them. And the warnings begin all the way back in the days of Amos. And so 170, 180 years later, here we are in Zephaniah and the warnings continue to come. And the thing I tried to point out to you last week is that the people had become carelessly complacent. Careless and complacent, both things. They'd heard these warnings for a century and a half and more, almost two centuries what did they concluded god won't do good or evil he won't do anything he won't act he won't act he hasn't acted he won't act that's chapter 1 verse 12 god continues to speak and god continues to warn of this day that is coming now here's the other thing Interesting thing that's going on that's an important part of the setting, if you will. If you read 2 Kings, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 23 and 2 Chronicles 34, you read in both of those places the narrative of the account of the revival that occurred in the reign of Josiah. Josiah who is mentioned as king of Judah in uh, in the first verse of Zephaniah's prophecy. There was a revival that broke out. There was a reform, a renewal. Somebody found the book of the law, the book of the covenant. Somebody found, if you will, the Bible buried in the basement. Look, that's that's something that will preach, folks. That in itself will preach. I'm not going to preach about that this morning. I'm just going to tell you that when the Bible gets lost, life and hope And righteousness and health and blessing get buried with it. That's what happened in Israel. And when Josiah found it, actually he didn't find it. Some people rummaging around in the basement found it, couldn't believe what they found. They brought it to Josiah's attention. They celebrated the Passover. And it had literally been generations and centuries since they celebrated the Passover. This celebration of God's great act of deliverance. And there was great joy in the land. But the sad thing is, the reform was partial. And the revival only touched a few. Sadly, it didn't extend to the whole nation. It did extend to some. They're the ones who were in view in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. There were some in the land who had heard the gospel, if you will, in the Passover. They heard it in the law. They heard of God's redemptive acts. And they responded by the grace of God. And they're the humble of the land. They're the ones who now seek to do his commands. And they're encouraged to keep seeking him. But tragically and sadly, it didn't happen. It didn't happen for the abundance of the people the majority of the people most of the people and again if you read second kings 23 verse 26 there's a there's a terrifying little statement right there that the lord because of the grievous sins of manasseh would not turn his anger away from judah now let me tell you something about the sins of manasseh they were not little peccadillos okay they were not little white lies. You remember the story about the rabbit's foot when I was a seven-year-old kid and I stole the rabbit's foot in the, in the grocery store? We're not talking about stealing rabbit's foots here or rabbit's feet. We're talking about the persistent practice of passing your sons and your daughters through fire. We're talking about the persistent practice of offering your children to Molech. And the New Testament designation for the place where this happened was Gehenna, that place of burning outside the city walls. And it became a place of burning because it had first been a place of idolatry where those kinds of practices and others were practiced. And what you would see is a 10-foot-high statue of the god Molech with a mouth wide open and at the base of the God is a burning fire. And to appease the wrath of Molech, the Israelites, the Judites, the Jerusalemites. Would offer their children into the mouth of Molech. And they would be consumed in the flames. And it became the city garbage dump outside Jerusalem. because of the atrocities that were committed there. We're not talking about peccadilloes during the days of Manasseh. We're not talking about God being this, this vindictive, easily agitated, irritated God. We're talking about a God who has witnessed this practice in the lives of his people persistently, perpetually. That's some of the setting of what is going on here in 620 or so B.C. And what Zephaniah is again for us is eyes through which we look into the future. And this recurring phrase in the first and second chapters, the day, the day of the Lord, the anger of the Lord, the day of the Lord's anger, these phrases point us to a critical significant theme event events across the whole of the old testament that connected that get, get that get connected to things in the new testament look at this phrase in the first chapter of zephaniah look at verses 7 through 9 be silent before the lord god for the day of the lord is near the lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests on the day of the Lord's sacrifice. I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. This is a a kind of a subtle condemnation of Israel that Israel doesn't want to wear the clothes of Israelites. Israel wants to wear the clothing of the nations around them. Israel is embarrassed by the clothing that God gives her to wear. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. What's that all about? Well, it's a condemnation of superstition in Israel. Look, you read chapter 2 and you hear the condemnation that comes toward Gaza, toward Ashkelon and Ashdod and the Cherethites and, and the people who live along the coasts, all of these pagan peoples. But folks... God's word here is being addressed to God's people. And what he's condemning is this, this superstition. Everyone who leaps over the threshold, it was something that was practiced among the pagan peoples. You remember when you were a kid and you'd, you'd be walking down the street and you'd say, You'd avoid the cracks in the sidewalk? You know, because if you, if, you, if you step on the crack, it breaks your mother's back. Remember that that kind of superstition? It's the same sort of thing. In pagan worship, you wouldn't step on the threshold, the thing that separates the world out there from the world in here. You would leap over it because of some superstitions that grew up around the threshold. God is condemning Israel, roundly condemning Israel for that sort of practice. Those who... Fill their master's house with violence and with fraud. Fill their master's house. What house is that? That's the temple. What's it filled with? It's not filled with compassion and mercy and kindness. If you go back and read Amos, you can read about how unjust and uncompassionate and how exploitative the rich were of the poor in the midst of Israel, which is to be a nation of brothers and sisters where people gladly care for one another. Now, let's hit the pause button here for just a second. I I know who you are for the most part. I mean, there's some here I don't know, but I, I know who I know who you are. I don't, I'm not aiming the shotgun at you. Please don't, don't interpret. Don't take it that way. I just want you to understand what the day of the Lord is and how significant it is in Old Testament Israel. And I want you to understand that the day of the Lord comes not just against pagan nations. It certainly does. And for that, there is good reason. But you see, the righteousness of God is indiscriminate. The justice of God is indiscriminate. And the day of the Lord, this day when God is going to do these things, is a real threat to Judah and Jerusalem, just as it was to Israel and Samaria in the north. What is this day of the Lord that, that comes because of these kinds of things that are described in verses 7, 8, and 9 of chapter 1. Well, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath, the day of the Lord's anger represents a decisive intervention of God by which he brings either judgment or vindication. Judgment or vindication, and very often both. At the same time. We, I say this all the time. It, it is so critically important for us as Christian folk. And, and if we're not folks who are, who are Christians, it's important for you to understand what the Bible teaches about the God of Christianity. And that is simply this, that all of history is in his hands all of history is in his hands the god of the bible is not the god is not the god of thomas jefferson the god of the bible is not the god of many of the founding fathers of this country their god was a god who wound the clock and set it running and took his hands off the god of the bible creates the whole universe His presence is in the whole of the universe. The theologians distinguish between the omnipresence of God, meaning that God fills all space, And the immensity of God, and by that distinction, for those of you who maybe don't know this or have forgotten, by that distinction, they're saying not only is God present in all of space, but the totality of who and what God is, is present in every point of space. The totality of God is totally present in every point of space. And he upholds the totality of what he has made by his power. He sustains it, upholds it, governs it, guides it. He is not a hands-off God. And the day of the Lord represents those moments, those points, where his presence is felt in might and power by some intrusion into the affairs of men and nations, either in judgment or in the vindication of his people. He's not absent. He's not hands-off. He's present. And he acts in history. We've made this, or we've talked about this phrase, the last days or those days or the latter days or at that time That phrase refers to the new age. The biblical conception of time is that there is this age and then there is the age to come. And the prophets on the other side of the cross look down the corridor of history from this age to the age that would come. And the age to come, we've been saying to you, the age to come comes when the king comes. When the king comes, he inaugurates the age to come, the latter days, those days. That's what Hebrews 1-2 tells us. In the past, God spoke to us in many ways, but in these last days, 20 centuries ago, after the death, resurrection, ascension, and the beginning of the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne, In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. What you have now is an overlap between the old age and the age to come. That's what's going on right now. But on both sides of the cross, across the whole of human history, there are these days of the Lord where the Lord intervenes in might and in power, either in judgment or in the vindication of His people. And that's what is in view here. That is what Zephaniah is talking about. A specific time when the Lord intervenes and acts decisively in history, either in judgment or in deliverance. And many times they, they happen simultaneously. Think about Noah and the flood. The day of the Lord is not used with respect to Noah and the flood, but that was a day of the Lord, a day that represented deliverance for Noah and his people, his family, and a day that represented judgment for the rest of the earth. Think about the deliverance, the exodus. Think about the parting of the Red Sea and the Israelites passing. That was a day of the Lord, a day in which the people were vindicated by the power of God, delivered by the power of God, and the armies of Pharaoh were crushed and destroyed. That is a day of the Lord. As you think about that day of the Lord, think of it small d, small d day of the Lord. There are many small d days of the Lord. You can read through the prophets. I'll just give you some passages that you can refer to. Isaiah 13 verse 1 and then 6 through 13 Obadiah, you, you've read Obadiah lately, haven't you? <laughs> Obadiah, one chapter, one little chapter, Obadiah, verses 1, 8, 10, and 15, another day of the Lord. Zephaniah, the book that we're in, Amos 5, 18 to 24, another passage. Sometimes the day of the Lord is the intrusion of God upon the enemies of the people of God. Sometimes the day of the Lord is the intrusion of God in judgment upon the people of God for their rebellion and their disobedience. Both are being described here in Zephaniah. Now, here are some things as you think about this day of the Lord, this theme. There's so much more that could be said about it, so many more passages that could be referred to. But here are some things to think about as you think about this day of the Lord. First, the idea of the day of the Lord reminds us and underscores for us what we have said throughout the minor prophets. And that is this. There is somebody at home in the universe who knows what is right, who cares about what is right, and who has power to do something about what is right. I suppose that's implicit in everything I've said so far about God's omnipresence and his immensity and everything else, but I want to underscore this for us again. There is somebody at home in this universe which we inhabit, and he knows what is right. We talked about God's knowledge last week, the limitlessness of God's knowledge. God not only knows, but he cares about what is right. And you know, deep down in our hearts, in each of our hearts, your heart, my heart, there is a longing to know that there is somebody at home in the universe who knows what is right and who cares about what is right. But we also want for there to be somebody at home in the universe who not only knows and who not only cares, but who is able to do something about it. We want that. I will just tell you, victims of abuse want to know that there is somebody at home in the universe who knows what is right, cares what is right, and is able to do something about what is right. People who are oppressed and violated in any number of ways want to know that there is somebody at home in the universe who knows what is right, who cares about what is right, and who will do something about what is right. Deep in our souls, we want for this God of the Bible whom I'm describing here to be the God who inhabits the universe. There is somebody at home in this universe. Now, I recognize that people will read Zephaniah or any of the other prophets or they will listen to me as I try to talk about the God of the Bible, found in the prophet Zephaniah or Isaiah or any one of these other prophets. And they will come away from these scriptures and they will say, my, he's an awfully intolerant God. He's an awfully intolerant God. And I'd like to have a conversation. We can't, you know, I don't know how many people are here, but we can't have the conversation that I'd love to have at that point, but I'd love to have the conversation With the person who would come to the Bible and who would say, This God is awfully intolerant. And I would just say to you that everybody is intolerant. Everybody is intolerant. You are intolerant. The most gracious among you is an intolerant person. People who recycle get frustrated with people who don't. (laughs) That's trivial, that's trite but they do, right? Republicans are intolerant of Democrats and vice versa. Liberals are intolerant of conservatives and vice versa. Everybody is intolerant. Here's the question. Who is it who decides what is to be tolerated And what isn't? Who is it who decides? Folks, this this is what people fight wars over. This is why guns are fired. This is why sabers are not only rattled, but used to lop off heads of enemies. Because people are intolerant. And what I'm suggesting to you that we learn from the Minor Prophets is that there is an infinite personal God who is really there. He is at home in the universe that he has made. He knows what is right. He cares about what is right. And as difficult as it may be for us to handle, he has power to do something about what is wrong in order to vindicate what is right. Some folks might say that it's not loving for God to act this way, for God to move so powerfully and and so mightily and so uncompromisingly and to to deal with people in judgment and wrath and anger. It's unloving to do that. But again, let me ask you, is it a loving thing? Look, is it a loving thing to allow murderers, thugs, What, you rapists? Whatever. Is it a loving thing to allow them to do whatever it is they want to do? We have jails. We have prisons. We have a whole court system. We have lawyers. We have a whole bunch of stuff arrayed against various forms of unrighteousness. And we employ those things. We engage those things because it is fundamentally unloving, uncompassionate to allow unjust, unrighteous things to persist and be perpetuated. The day of the Lord is a hard, hard thing to wrestle with. But I want to suggest to you that in your heart of hearts, Deep down in your soul, you want this God to be at home in his universe because he knows, cares, and he has power to do something. And it is both just and loving for him to deal with what is unrighteous. Now here's the second thing I would say. as you reflect upon this idea of the day of the Lord, as you read through the Old Testament and the prophets and you see day, small d, repeated. Day of the Lord and then another day of the Lord and another day of the Lord. Let me encourage you to consider, to understand that day of the Lord, small d, points away from itself in the direction of the day of the Lord, capital D. Whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, The scriptures are clear that there is a final day of the Lord that is coming. If you want to read a little bit about it, and this is tough too. This is tough too. Nobody said that the Bible was easy. You read Isaiah 30 and you see God's response to the Israelites And how they wanted the prophets to be silenced. They wanted the prophets not to speak hard things. They wanted the prophets to speak sweet things. Speak to us with allusions. Speak to us with sweetness. Don't speak to us of these hard... Nobody said the Bible was easy. If you want to read a description of the day of the Lord, capital D, read Revelation 18 and 19 and understand this as you do, that the book of the Revelation, frankly, is not concerned. There are two, two spheres, if you will, two spheres of activity in the book of Revelation. There's the earthly sphere and the heavenly sphere. But let me suggest to you that John, that Jesus, that the book of Revelation is not concerned to outline for us exactly what is going to transpire as we move toward the great cataclysmic, Day of the Lord at the end of history. Here's what the book of Revelation is designed to do. It is designed to communicate this one theme. That Jesus who came in humility is now the king of glory seated upon his throne, ruling and reigning over all things, bringing all of history to this great cataclysmic day of the Lord. Forty-five times in the book of Revelation, the word throne appears, and there's always somebody on it. Guess who? The King of kings and the Lord of the lords. And you know what the central activity is in the book of Revelation? It's not warfare. It's not conflict. It's worship. And as you move through the book of Revelation... The numbers of beings that gather around the throne of the exalted, ruling, reigning king of kings and lord of lords increases. It begins with the seraphim who surround the throne. It then extends to the 24 elders. It then encompasses all of the angels. And then it encompasses the whole of the creation. That's chapters 4 and 5. And then when you get to chapter 15 of Revelation... There is a people innumerable from every race and nation and tribe and tongue who have been gathered around the throne to worship as the seraphim do, as the 24 angels do, as all the angels do, as the whole of the creation does. Now the people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue is gathered around the throne to worship the lamb who was slain. That's what Revelation is about. The king of kings and the growing chorus of worship that accumulates Across the centuries of history leading up to the final day of the Lord. When the King of Kings and the Lord of the Lords, in chapter 18, rides out on his white horse bearing his saber and dethrones Babylon and slaughters Babylon. Vindicating righteousness and justice and delivering his people from her oppression. And then, chapter 19 is filled with hallelujahs. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Hallelujah to the King, to the Lord of glory, who is vanquished. Babylon, who represents all of the institutions and nations and principalities and powers arrayed against the one true king, has brought her down, bringing judgment upon her, and in that act vindicating his people. Where is history going? It's going in the direction of that great day of the Lord. And those who are robed in the linen white righteousness of Jesus the King will be delivered from that judgment. But those who do not have the clothing of Jesus the King will be forever banished from his presence to suffer judgment and wrath. There is a great day of the Lord coming which will make the days of the Lord seem like child's play. And here's the third thing that you need to think about and know as you contemplate this idea of the day of the Lord. And that is simply this. That that future day of the Lord when the God of heaven and earth will execute judgment against all rebellion, all disobedience, all unrighteousness, all ungodliness. That judgment has already come. And what that means for you is that there is a place for me to go, a place for you to go, So that you might know with certainty that when that future day comes, you will not face judgment, but you will pass through judgment into life. Where did that future judgment come? Where was it that God executed his pure, perfect, righteous justice and wrath against unrighteousness, injustice, sin, rebellion? It was at the cross. It was an intrusion of the future day of wrath into the present. And on the cross was the visitation of the limitless wrath and judgment of God. The day of the Lord occurred, capital D, at the cross of Jesus Christ. Which means, for you and me, for people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, There is a place to go to find safety, a safe haven from the storm that is coming. And that place of safety, that place of safe haven is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who having absorbed the full measure of the day of the Lord from his father's hand is now the risen reigning king of righteousness who gives his righteousness to any who would come to him, that they might be clothed in that linen and spared that judgment. The day of the Lord, dear friends, is central in the scriptures. And what it represents is hope. There's somebody who cares in the universe. And it represents the opportunity or true, complete, and entire forgiveness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, King and Head of the Church, no longer robed in the humility, weakness of human flesh, but now ascended and glorified at the right hand of your Father, the God-man possessed of all splendor, all beauty, all holiness, all power, and all authority. You know our hearts. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would trouble those who need to be troubled. I pray that you would speak to those who need to be spoken to about this day of your return when you will come. I pray, oh God, I pray that they would tremble before you and flee to you for safe harbor, for forgiveness, for security. And I pray for your people that you would speak peace to their hearts, And reassure them that because they have come to you, they have passed from judgment to life. And that they may await your return with joy, knowing that the day of your return is their vindication. Lord Jesus, speak to both kinds of people powerfully, for the sake of your own name, we pray in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing number 159, O oh, Savior, Precious Savior, as we sing. I'll just say if there's, you know, there's any of this that is,